Charlie Vuelman, welcome to the 3180 podcast. How are you doing, man? Awesome, man. Thanks for taking a moment to, to talk with me and having me on, man. Thanks for reaching out to us on Facebook. Um, Thomas and I uh, don't know a whole lot of folks in the medical community, especially uh, in the ER nursing community. So when you offered to, to come on and kind of give uh, your perspective, we really appreciated it. So so what are you seeing? You're at Willis Knight in Piermont. You work in the ER. You're a registered nurse. And today, uh, Friday, Good Friday, you have the day off. Yeah, it's, uh, it's exciting. I've got actually the whole weekend off, and so I'll be able to recharge my battery a little bit uh, before I head back into it. Uh, next oh, week to. When's the last time you had a day off? Um, I mean, we we get some days off, but it's usually the way it works is we work a couple days on, a couple days off, um, and then we'll sort of stay uh, engaged that way. To, uh, you know, we get every other weekend we'll get off. It's nice and. A lot of us uh, will pick up extra shifts here and there to just kind of, you know, help with patient flow management and to help with the influx of traffic. And uh, now with kind of what we're seeing, which is a decrease in the amount of patients just coming through the hospital, but an increase in their acuity, uh, these long weekends off really help us recharge. So glad to have it. Well, good deal. Um, that, uh, uh, you know, I know you guys, some of you guys have been working kind of around the clock. Um, what, we, before we started recording, you started, you said that you guys started preparing for this COVID situation maybe a, a couple of months back, long before uh, guys like me realized the severity of the situation. So when did you first hear this thing? Um, you know, who who uh, briefed the nursing staff of the ER? Who? How did you find out about it? And, and what was your plan of action? We have a pretty a pretty well put together network uh, in Louisiana for emergency management. And there's a lot of resources out there to learn about um, uh, the, the LEARN network, L-E-R-N network. Uh, but, but we've all been talking about this for a while. I mean, we saw early signs that, you know, the, the flu was still out there. And then certainly we all heard in the news of, you know, all the stuff that was coming out of China. Um, you know, back in February and, and even before then for those of us who were, were looking at it and paying attention to it. And I, I think most people who do what I do and who do what, what all nurses do probably pay attention to those data points on some level. You know, you're always kind of keeping the side eye out. Like, is there, you know, what's brewing? What's coming? What are people seeing? And, and that's on top of all the regular stuff we already see. I mean, you know, it's one thing to be ready for the flu, but we still have to deal with strokes. We still have to deal with heart attacks. We still have to do with, deal with pneumonia and all these other, you know, complex systemic illnesses that, that happen out there and that, that come through our ERs and our hospitals all the time. So, yeah, so when we hear about that stuff, you kind of think, well, how, how's that going to affect us? How's that going to affect the department? And I think for this particular viral outbreak, um, you know, it was, it was real hard to know, like, well, what is this going to look like back in, you know, late January, early February. But as the weeks came and we started seeing what other hospitals were dealing with and, of course, up there in the Pacific Northwest, what they were dealing with helped us kind of get our minds around, you know, oh, wow, this is really serious and, and we need to start making preparations. Well, do you guys uh... – I mean, do you still have available ventilators? Do you still have available beds? I mean, are you completely overwhelmed where you, where you can't keep up with that? It is, it's intense. 
Uh, it is very intense. To answer your question, yeah, we do have ventilators available. Uh, we do have beds available. Um, you know, some people get better, and that gives us the availability, availability of beds. Some people, you know, as, as sad as it is, some people don't get better. And, and you know, ultimately those patients that expire, you know, we end up with more beds than those. And we've certainly seen our cases in the hospitals here in Shreveport and Bergeron. We've seen cases on both sides. We've seen patients get a little better and be able to step down out of the ICU and go to a lower level of care to finish getting better and then ultimately leave the hospital. And we've also seen the patients that didn't do well. And uh, so all hospitals are going to see that. I think there's you know a little bit of a balance there of uh, tears of joy and tears of sadness for sure. Well, what's the uh, what's the ICU at Willis Knight Piermont looking like right now? Is it is it packed? Is it uh, is everybody fearful for the for the onslaught? Super packed. I mean, those guys are dealing with. By the time they the patient gets to the ICU, that patient's sick. I mean, they're we we see in the ER we see them come in in various stages. You know, we might see somebody who's weathering the symptoms really well and maybe we can give them some education on how to protect themselves and their family and we can send them home to self-care. And those are really nice. We like those. Those feel good. Um, and then we see the patients that are really, really sick, and then we have to send those to the ICU. And by the time they get up there, our brothers and sisters up in the ICU, they're, they're just dealing with the sickest one. Um, so, you know, those guys are, are having to do all the stuff that you're hearing about on TV where it's, you know, turning patients on their belly, uh, face down, prone, uh, to try and get better lung function. They're all intubated up there. Everybody's on, um, like, extension cords for electronics. We have extension cords for IVs. They're basically uh, tubing extensions, and that way the IV pumps are outside of the room so that the nurse can access them, change rates, and check on them, or, or change antibiotics out without having to go in the room, and uh, waste those vital uh, personal protective equipment resources. So there, yeah, we, uh, I was I was going to ask if that was to expedite the procedures to have all of the um, to haul, have all the units out in the hall, but this is for the protection of the staff, so they don't have to go into each um, you know viral infected room. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's there's a probably not written in a textbook anywhere. There's a word called cluster care, or a phrase called cluster care, and. You know, if you can, as a, as a nurse or caregiver, if you can go in and get a lot of stuff done at once and then get out of there, that's better than going into that room 15 different times, you know, over a short period of time and, and getting all those exposures and, you know, putting on all that equipment, going in there, doing one thing, coming out, taking it all off. It's way better to go in and do as much as you can and get out of there. Um, the ICU is very fortunate in that the wall in between the nurse and the patient is glass. So even if the nurse is not in there, they're able to make, you know, to be able to see what's going on and, and visualize, not just looking at the monitor and seeing that patient's heart rate or respiratory rate. They can actually see that patient as well uh, because they have the glass there. So, so yeah, so they're able to kind of cluster what they do every time they go in, get a lot done, get out. Uh, but the little, uh, minutia that we have to do, touching IV poles and pumps and changing medicines and changing fluids out here and there. 
that's just that stuff can all be done outside the room whenever you're creative and they're using that extension tubing like that. So they've really done a great job of overcoming, uh, you know, exposure risk for themselves. Yeah. Well, what what percentage right now of uh, of the ICU beds are occupied by COVID patients? I think when I left yesterday, I, I think out of our twenty bed primary ICU that we're using for this, I believe we had eighteen ventilated patients in there, and two that were in respiratory distress but did not need a vent yet. And, and then those, that eighteen out of twenty is COVID. Oh, for sure. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, and we've done a good job of of being flexible with understanding that you know not every patient that comes to the ER just because COVID's going around doesn't mean that every patient's going to have it, right? So, so we're still going to have a stroke patient that might need to go to the ICU. We're still going to have somebody in diabetic ketoacidosis that's going to come to the ICU, but we've taken those patients and we put them in a different part of the hospital and kind of created a secondary ICU for non-COVID uh, patients. Just okay, isolate all right. them away. Well, okay, so what percentage of your uh, folks that moved to the ER are coming in with COVID versus some other ailment? Uh, I would say right now the, the COVID-related complaints probably attribute for 80, 80% oh, of, wow. of, you know, probably four out of every five patients are well, so short of the rest. All right. So say say uh, say you're sheltering in place, and you've been given a list of things to do by uh, oh say your wife around the house, and you result uh, that that results in some yard work and uh, maybe maybe the use of some power equipment that you're not used to, and you you you, <laughs> you cut a big gash in your leg or something while outside you know you know working on a, a flower bed. Tell me, take me through the process of going to the ER um, for for a non-COVID related issue right now. Like if you if you you know chop your finger, you know, cutting vegetables, what, what do you do? Do you go to the regular ER? Do you go to a secondary triage unit? And, you know, what do you guys do when you receive a patient that's not COVID-related? Yeah, this is a cool question. So the, the way that we would like to see this in the world of emergency medicine is if it is something that does not require a major intervention or is a potential for an admission, if it's not real, real scary, you know, I mean, I know blood can be scary, but if it's not real scary, we would hope people would go to quick cares, urgent cares, you know, like dock in a box type yeah. uh, freestanding uh, treatment centers. That doesn't always happen though. So they will uh, come to the ER because they just don't know maybe, or maybe their uh, closest, you know, urgent care is not very close to them, but maybe the hospital's in eyesight. So they'll come through the ER, uh, they'll sign in, to our triage where a nurse will meet them there and basically do a real quick, you know, 30 second assessment of their risk for, um, you know, COVID or any other major problem. They, they take the temp. At them. Yeah. Take a temp, get some quick vitals on them. And then they'll spend the next, outside of that 30 seconds, they'll spend the next you know, five minutes just understanding what their problem is, what brought them to the ER. Um, and then we'll mask them. Right now, we're kind of just masking everybody. Uh, we know masks are a, a precious piece of equipment, but we've got some, so it's fine. We'll mask these patients up so that they don't additionally come in with their cut fingers. Now they've left with a, a weird viral infection that you know we're still learning about. So we'll protect them that way. 
and then we're just bringing them straight back to a room as it's available. Uh, we've created ways in our waiting room to create some distancing, but we've been fortunate to be able to just quickly bring people back, get them a room, you know, if they need an x-ray to make sure that there's not anything in that wound, you know, glass or gravel or, uh, you know, something that shouldn't be in that wound, and then we can get it cleaned up, get them stitched up, and then get them out of there really quick. And that's the ideal uh, course of treatment for those kind of guys. And and we're still seeing that stuff. Like, people, you know, bang their head on stuff. People cut their finger. People, uh, we you know, shoot themselves in the hand. That's yeah. the accident. The home, is a dangerous, <laughs> the home is a dangerous place. The One of the ladies that we work with, she fell, and she had, like, you know, on she fell onto her face. Like, and, you know, blacked both of her eyes, broke her nose, like had to go, like, you know, the paramedics picked her up and took her to the, you know, ER, but that's, you know, she's home now, but it was the same kind of thing. It's like, how do you, you don't know where to go, you know, at that point. And it's, you know, she's at home with her son who's, you know, 12 years old. So it's like, you know, call ER, I mean, call the ambulance and that's, that's how they dealt with it. and look, we're, we're always there, you know, um, we're, ERs are 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there's no such thing as a holiday, we are there, and our equipment works, you know, and uh, we're still seeing all the other stuff that we see, and we're still happy to see, and so when somebody comes in, you know, that's your coworker that, that fell on her face, you know, she's going to come in, she's going to get, you know, facial bones looked at, she might get CT of her head, if if it was a really big hit and if she's gotten cuts or anything, we're going to deal with those and, and send her home with some instructions to, uh, of what to watch for to make sure that she doesn't have any um, compounding problems from that fall. And you know, ideally, you know, she'll probably be okay. But if she wasn't, we can still admit those patients to the hospital for further observation or deeper workup. And we have ways to keep her safe and to keep those people safe and keep them away from these COVID patients. We, dedicated an entire floor, uh, Piermont in particular, to where we're putting these patients. And uh, you can imagine those floors are, are busy. Uh, we've got anywhere from 30 to 45 of those patients at any given time on that floor. These are non-ICU patients who have COVID, who, who we know have COVID or we have a strong suspicion who have it, and we have them there, isolated away from the rest of the hospital. And those nurses have their own protocols for how they're keeping themselves safe and how they're isolating those patients. And the rest of the hospital can be dedicated to the other things, you know, strokes, head injuries that need to be observed, those sort of things. Um, I, I do have a question. I know you probably haven't had a lot of time to listen to the news or watch the television, um, but is there anything with the national narrative that you're hearing or maybe even the statewide narrative that you disagree with from a medical standpoint, or is everything kind of spot on? Everybody seems to be, you know, doing the best they can. I mean, I'm not a, uh, a super political guy, but you know, if you're watching the news right now, you're probably hearing from your political leaders, right? So like in Louisiana, we're hearing from John Bell Edwards a whole lot. I think he's done a really good job of keeping people posted. In, in maintaining a level of, of seriousness there and encouraging people to continue to stay home. Um, or, or maybe you're seeing our national leaders, you're seeing uh, the president on TV and some of his people. And um, I, think, I think for the most part, everybody in a leadership position, I, I'm, I'm 
idealistic maybe, and I feel like they don't want any, they don't want people to get sick and die. And I think we're doing a good job of telling people to stay home and to uh, not get in groups. I think we're doing a really good job on that. Um, I think that there's a lot of distraction. You know, I, if I hear about this stimulus and that stimulus or, or these checks and this, it's a lot of, um, these are all certainly important topics. Uh, but sometimes I wonder if, if, if maybe all that talk is not just distracting people from what we really need right now, which is a lot of education and encouragement, education about staying home and how microbiology works and, and encouragement that, you know, when this thing is over, you know, it's going to be fine. We're all going to come out of this thing. It may not be tomorrow, and it might take months or years to really get every gear grinding back the way it was before. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I can't say that I'm, I'm terribly against anything that's being said out there in, in the news media in general. I just really, really wish we would uh, keep encouraging people and, and keep telling them to stay home. Lots of education. Okay. Well, I, and I guess to be more specific about that question, I, um, I mean, uh, the, the stay in the shutter in home or whatever, shelter in place orders, you know, you think that's been beneficial? That's kept the curve down, I guess you could say? I do. I do. Um, we, you know, our, our facility, uh, I'm not sure if I'm at liberty to say how many people we typically see a day in our ER. Um, but, you know, if we look back at our numbers in November, November, December, for instance, we're seeing 50% of that traffic, like half. And, it, and, and the half that we are seeing, that's just, those are really sick folks. I mean, like I said, 80% or more, have a COVID-related complaint, and they probably need us. You know, they they definitely need to, to be checked on in some way, form or fashion. So I do think people are staying home. I do think, you know, for our business anyway. Now, I don't feel that way necessarily when I drive past a Walmart or Target parking lot. But, uh. <laughs> well, okay, so and, and the narrative, again, that we've heard is, is the cough and the fever, and, the, and that's what most folks that, that have ended that, that you've diagnosed with uh, COVID-19 or having the coronavirus, they've, they've presented to your ER with a cough and a fever, or are there some other indicators that people should watch out for? I think cough and fever is, is the really easy one. I think, um, you know, for, for me, I really look at heart rate a lot. Heart rate tells me a lot. And, you know, if somebody is sick with something, their heart rate's out of whack. And I'm not saying like 90 beats a minute, but it's, you know, if you put your finger on your neck and, and you watch your heart rate for, or, or gosh, if you have an Apple Watch or any other sort of device in your house, if your heart rate 120 and you feel bad, but you don't have a temperature, something is wrong. Your heart rate sitting down isn't going to be 120 beats. So when I see somebody come into our triage or, or they get put in the patient room, I am immediately raising eyebrows whenever I see those high heart rates. So, you know, you may be the kind of person who, you know, maybe you take Tylenol and it's very effective for you. And so you don't see, you know, a, a high temperature for a while. And you're like, oh, I'm only 99, right? I'm not that 100 degree fever point where we start getting worried, but I'm 99 degrees and my heart rate's 120 and I feel bad. Well, it's probably sick. Um, I, I do want to know, uh, all right, so I, I don't I don't know if you can speak to this. 
this might be more like of an epidemiological question, but does the increased temperature outside, is that going to help us out at all? Like, it, it, will the virus go away in May and June when the temperatures are in the 100 degree range? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we know we know that a lot of uh, of other viruses do that. Like, we definitely don't see when it's 100 degrees outside. We're not seeing the flu. I mean, we. I'd like to be optimistic and say that that's going to be, um, you know, the same thing. Um, but it, it's certainly to tell, and we're still learning. But I, I, I think that, I think that there's a strong chance of it. I mean, I saw things. Uh, saying the opposite of that on, um, gosh, I can't remember what news outlet it was, saying that temperature won't matter a whole lot. Um, but we, we shouldn't assume, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't just assume that the weather is going to make this thing go away. Um, but I am optimistic that we'll see less of this stuff as it gets warmer and, and of course, as the curve continues to flatten and, and ultimately go away. Well, let me ask you this. This is something else that I've been thinking about. All right, let's all shelter in place. Maybe the shelter in place order lasts through May. But supposedly this thing had an incubation period of like two to three weeks, and the New Orleans severity is blamed on Mardi Gras, which Mardi Gras was over by the middle of February. I mean, Fat Tuesday was uh, February the 20-something-ish, and, you know, we didn't – it took two or three weeks for the the state to shut down, right? So what's to say that the the – the proverbial curve is flattened and then people come out of their homes at the, say at the end of May and, and start milling about again and start driving and start going to work again. And there's still going to be a few infected folks. I mean, what, what is to stop a recurrence of this in June? There's nothing. There's nothing. I mean, there's no reason that uh, we should think that this, we couldn't see secondary or, or, you know, serve for, you know, little bell curves, you know, the, the little, little, little pops, right? There's no reason I think that we shouldn't. And, you know, given the, the how small the world is now, you know, we could certainly see this again. But I think that... Oh, we've just dodged, like, we've just dodged the bullet. We, the U.S. has just dodged the bullet in the last 10 or 15 years on two or three of these. Oh, uh, just like lucky, man. I mean, we were gearing up for Ebola like it was about to go down. I mean, we were practicing putting on all the gear. We were expecting people to just virtually explode in front of us. and you know, we really didn't know. You know, it was crazy. And what year was that? Then, oh, gosh, I can't remember. It was like five, six years ago, right? Yeah. Maybe four. God, life's flying by. I'm, I turned 40 next year. It's just every, it seems like everything 100 miles an hour, like watching my kids grow up so fast. But, well, um, Quebec, yeah, I mean, Quebec, Quebec had a bad, uh, or was it Montreal that had a, um, a, a severe outbreak of was it avian flu or um, mm-hmm. yeah. something a few years back. Yeah. Do, you, do you recall that? Yeah. And, and again, all these things, all of us in the industry, we all have our eye on it. And we're like, oh, man, is this the next thing? How's this going to affect us? So we go see an influx of patients. You know, Canada's got it. And they're just right there. Like, thank you. And you know, I can make it pretty clear. Um, but I mean, you can't. If we, if we live and hear this stuff all the time, we, I mean, gosh, it's crippling, right? Like, how would you ever get out of bed if you thought that you'd go to the gas station and get Ebola or avian flu or you know, COVID twenty six, right, or whatever? Snacks, who knows? But 
we can't live in that fear, but we, we know that it's always certain that people could get sick again. I mean, we see the flu kick back up every every fall, right? Yeah. We see that come back. And, and, and what we have with the flu versus this is time. We've known the flu for decades. We've vaccinated against the flu for decades. We've, you know, built procedures and policies and people are just accustomed to the flu. So nobody's really scared of it anymore. I, I almost think that like people probably don't respect the flu as much as they should. People are definitely respecting uh, the coronavirus, the COVID-19 for sure, uh, because we've seen just how uh, powerful, you know, something like this is. And so, I, I think it's going to change the way we behave in, in the world for sure. It's certainly going to change the way a lot of people practice in the hospital. Um, but yeah, I think I lost track of your original question, which was, you know, will we see a resurgence as people get back out? Yeah, I just think, I think we're going to be better equipped. We'll have more time behind us. We'll have more understanding of antibiotics and antivirals and what makes this thing tick and how to fight it for sure. What's the what's the latest news from the, uh, the health world on developing some viable vaccine that could be mass produced? Is that a year away or two years away, or is it uh, a little sooner than that? That stuff has to go through trials. Um, I know that there are several companies that are pushing for vaccines, and, and those are all in trials. Those those things take a year, you know, to to go through FDA trials to make sure they don't make people sick, uh, but. You know, even if there was a vaccine available right now, it's hard to tell Americans what to do sometimes. And I don't know that people just rush out and get it. I think a lot of us would, uh, but I don't think everybody would just rush out and get it. So, you know, we may see, you know, certainly in the future, we may see a deal where you get like a, a, a multi-flu shot. You know, maybe you get a seasonal viral infection shot and it stops being called the flu shot right of the flu vaccine and maybe it'll contain things like the flu vaccine and vaccine against coronavirus. It may just be healthcare providers that start getting that stuff uh, first and early on. But science is, uh, science is fun to watch in this arena. It's interesting to see what they do, how fast they move and what they can come up with when you get a lot of really good minds together working on this stuff. So I'm hopeful that you know, maybe not next year, maybe not next uh, potential COVID season, if that's what this becomes, heaven forbid, but uh, maybe in the next couple of years where we see that, that being something that everybody has access to. All right. I've got, um, I've got a couple other things for you. you. You mentioned that you guys have plenty of masks and you can actually give folks that show up to the ER um, to, to protect themselves and maybe to pre- protect other people. Uh, you, you're giving them masks. And what, Let me be cautious with that statement. Let me okay. be cautious with that statement. We have masks. We don't have truckloads of masks. So we can't, you know, give somebody that comes to ER for a legitimate complaint, we can't give them 10 masks to go home with. Um, but can we protect that patient? For sure. And we have a duty to, and, and we do and we will. And the community has been incredibly creative uh, with with getting handmade masks and just wearing a bandana over their face. Sometimes, as silly as that sounds, I mean, one is more than none, right? So something is better than nothing. And the community's been really good about uh, uh, you know creating masks and sewing masks. There's just truckloads of sewing machine operating, Shreveport 
people who are just making masks hundreds a day and, and, and putting those things in, in people's hands. So, so yeah, I want to be cautious that we do have masks. We can protect patients who come in. Just can't, you know, turn them out like it's uh, Mardi Gras beef. Well, okay, but it, there's some places around the country that are completely low on masks, don't have masks, um, and and low on ventilators. I mean, it was Willis Knight in Piermont or the Willis Knight Health System in general uh, well-equipped and, and well-prepared for this thing? And, and if not, or even if so, you know, what are your suggestions moving forward for the healthcare community to make sure that the, the next time COVID rolls through the U.S., we're better equipped to deal with it? I, I think that we did a good job of being um, prepared and responsive. I, there's a lot of things that we could have done a whole lot better uh, from stockpiling our own stuff. You know, I mean, I, we definitely had back stores of masks, but not, you know, I, I think we could have had more for sure. And I know a lot of my colleagues and I will be leaning heavily on the leaders in our hospital to make sure that, you know, should something like this come around again, we're prepared. And I think those leaders in our hospitals want that too. I don't think for a second that, you know, when it comes to protecting their employees, I, I think they do have, they're trying to do the best they can for what they have. Uh, but there's only a finite amount of resources um, when you've never dealt with something like this, right? So, so I think we've done a pretty good job. Um, more is better than less. So, you know, if we had a room in our facility where there were a hundred extra ventilators hanging out, well, that'd be cool. Um, but then again, we still need people to operate them, people to run them, you know, and, and holy moly, are we having that heavy of response that we needed a room with a hundred extra ventilators? I don't know. It's pretty scary to think about. I know other areas, you know, we've had a lot of cases here for sure. And we've had a lot of very sick people here. Yeah, you, you, you're just and, one. E, you're just one ER. I mean, that, that Willis Knight. You're one ER. Three or four ERs in the in the city. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about look like we've got four. Christmas has a couple. Uh, you know, LSU is there, right? And then you start talking about like, what about Cachada, North Caddo, um, you know, Natchitoches? Like, you start getting like kind of regional, and you start looking like, you know, we have a lot of hospitals. A lot of a lot of hospital care, a lot of medical care in central and north Louisiana um, for spread out as it all is. We actually do have a lot of access, and, and we're lucky that we also have a lot of nursing programs. So there's a lot of staff and a lot of potential staff out there. And we have a medical school here. So we're fortunate that we have a lot of doctors here. Um, but, you know, you get out to more rural places, you know, even Natchitoches and beyond, and uh, you know, the resources start getting tighter and tighter and tighter. Yeah. So I, I think I think we're fortunate in that just here in this area alone, we've got seven plus ERs to spread this stuff out at, and and that helps not any one facility get so inundated and overrun that they just can't handle it. Uh, but again, trust me, I I wish we had more. I'd I'd love to have a ton of stuff, right? More gadgets, more equipment, more cool stuff, and more people to run the cool stuff is always better than less. Uh, but when you talk about running a business, you know, you can't have that stuff just laying around not being used, you know, breaking or going bad from uh, not being used, not being maintained or having people sitting around twiddling their thumbs. So it's yeah, how, it. how much is a, like one of the ventilators that you're employing at the ICU? I mean, what does that thing cost? 
oh God, I, you know, I don't know. I've not been on the purchasing side. I've heard people say anywhere from uh, twenty to forty five thousand dollars. Yeah, that's, that's per that's per machine, and and you know, per machine, we got twenty beds in that in that ICU, and then our ER, we keep one, uh, well, two right now. We keep two just down there so that we can, if we have to quickly intubate somebody, we can throw them on on one, and then respiratory therapy will magically have another one available. And they'll bring it down to so our car level of having one in the, in the apartment down there at all. So, you know, our facility, any one hospital might have 40 vents in it already, you know, or, or even more. So I, I can't imagine how many vents LSU literally has on the property on a normal day, let alone, you know, during a crisis like this where we've all had to start resourcing, buying, pulling those in, getting extra ventilators on site. Yeah, so, I mean, it, 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 you know, it's, it's easy to say, oh, we'll just, we'll just get 100 more ventilators and keep them down in the basement uh, in case this ever happens again. But, I mean, that's just not in the budget. for. I mean, a hospital, well, a hospital it's not isn't realistic. It's not realistic yet. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not realistic. Like, I think a lot of people, like, the medical industry makes money. I'm not, like, you know, I'm not trying to say that, um, you know, oh, it's hard out here for No, I mean, you know, hospitals that control their finances and have people in place that are looking out to make sure that the business of the hospital is, is taken care of and it's healthy, those people have to be mindful and not just, you know, buy stuff that's never going to be used. But I do think coming out of this, I think the expectation, and I hope the expectation, of our people that are in the position to make those decisions, I, I hope the par level number goes uh, up for sure. I mean, you know, make up a number, right? Like 10,000 masks. We want to always have 10,000 masks on standby. Well, maybe after this thing's over, maybe that number's 50. Yeah. You know? and, and maybe we cycle through those. I mean, they've got some shelf life to them. We can certainly climate control storage, some of those consumable items like masks. And maybe we weather the storm a little bit better uh, the next time there is one. Well, tell me how the morale is looking for your, your fellow nursing staff at Willis High and Piermont. I mean, are you guys uh, staying in good spirits? Are you, I guess, the, maybe some of the fear going down a little bit now? Are, are the numbers starting to decrease? Um, like, have we, have we reached the peak yet of, of cases, or do you expect them to be inundated with more cases next week? What, what's, the, what's the tenor of um, the whole thing over there? I, yeah, I think that for the most part, everybody – positivity has definitely come up. I mean, if you, if you asked me that question in um, maybe early March, the answer would have been, you know, oh, mutiny. you know, everybody's mad. We're all freaking out about, you know, do we have enough masks? Do we have enough, you know, does our leadership have our back? And I think as we move forward a little bit, for sure, I think everybody feels a little bit better. We all know, like, uh, the lay of the land. We know what we have, what we don't have. We know how to manage these patients better. We know what we're looking for better. So, so the anxiety level has come down, right? Nobody's freaking out kind of like they were at the beginning where it was very stressful. I and mean, we were there to do our work and we we're happy to do it. And we're, we're blessed to be able to, you know, have gone to nursing school and, and being given licenses to do this and take care of patients alongside of our doctors. Uh, but, you know, there was a little bit of anxiety there. And I think that has certainly gotten better. Um, I think, you know, the hospitals are doing the best job that they can possibly do to make sure staff and patients are getting everything they need and want. 
So I think the outlook is definitely more optimistic. As far as, you know, have we have we flattened the curve? Is, is the case load going to go down? It's really it's really hard to say, but I think so. You know, I every every time I work, I learn something new. You know, or I see something that well, I didn't expect that. Um, you know, for instance, like a week ago, uh, we started having some cases of, you know, just people coming in depressed and, and they, they've drank themselves into oblivion. It's really sad. These people have lost their jobs. They're stuck in their house. They're bored. They can't go anywhere. They've lost their jobs. They don't have any money. And so we saw like a little spike in depression cases. Oh, that makes total sense. I wasn't thinking about that, but we are going to see a lot of that for sure. Um, so I, you know, I learn something new every shift and, and every time I go in there and, and uh, you know, if you're not learning, you're not growing. And I, I think the thing that I learned probably these last few shifts is we are starting to see a little bit more patient load. Those patients are sicker, but they're managing it. Um, we're not having to aggressively uh, intubate people like we were just a week ago. These patients are still sick. They're still short of breath. They're having a hard time catching their breath. Their vitals might look bad, uh, but they're we're able to get in there and do some things and, and and help them sort of bridge the gap of where they are and where they need to be and to not be so scary. Now, we're still having people that need to be innovated and, and, and rapidly intubated and rapidly managed, and they're very, very sick. We're still seeing that. Uh, but I, I do feel confident that, you know, if we're not at the top of this thing, we're, we're definitely riding the flat of it. And I'm hopeful that May is, is when we'll start seeing things kind of show out. And, okay. And you know, our dollar will always be up. But I think, you know, come May, June, I'm optimistic. Well, good. I, um, I know you said that your overall patient load is down, uh, you know, from a few months back, but the acuity level is up, and the um, and and now you're saying in, in the COVID in the COVID weeks your your patient level is going up, but the the acuity level of the COVID patients going on a on an overall basis going down a little bit. So you know you you guys are still seeing an increase in pain in patient load day by day, but it's not it's not at the emergency level that that you were seeing a week or two ago. No, I mean it's still emergent. Yeah, yeah. But it definitely is. Um, Definitely a little bit more understandable to manage now. Yeah. We had, you know, two weeks ago, you know, had a gentleman walk in and, and literally went bad so fast in front of us. You know, he's talking within 25 minutes of being there, and we're having to do a lot of weird stuff to try and uh, take care of this, guy, this gentleman. And unfortunately, it didn't work out for him. So we're seeing these patients come in. It's just it's really bad, right? And, and we're still seeing sick people come in. And so they're just, it just seems like it's getting a little bit easier to manage every week. Well, that's, uh, that, is, that is good news. How about, um, I see there's been some efforts through the Facebook page, 318 Curbside Eats, and, um, you know, to try to feed some of these guys like you on the front line with local restaurants and, and food deliveries. Is that uh, something that you guys are uh, appreciative of, and, and do you want more of that? Is that something that Shreveport folks can get behind and help you out with? Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's, the, I know I talked a little bit about the local folks that are sewing masks and, and how cool that is. The outreach of people who are just sending, you know, food and, and little gifts and stuff our way, that's amazing. That's so wonderful. I mean, you know, like we're, otherwise we're, we're dragging leftovers from home up there, which that's fine too. But, man, when you get like a, 
you know, a big thing of, of gumbo. That's just nice. You know, somebody took the time to make that for us. That's cool. I, I think, um, you know, it helps too. If you've got somebody going, you know, a person goes and they go to uh, a restaurant and they say, hey, I'm going to buy five trays of jambalaya for uh, this ER or something. Well, then that gives that restaurant some business too and helps them. So it's just the community's really like diving in and, and helping on all fronts. So, you know, it makes that person feel good they did it. Makes that restaurant feel good that they had purpose and they were able to generate some some funds inside of their, their business during this downturn. And then they felt good bringing it to the ER and the smiles that, and, and the high fives and the appreciative uh, nature of the nurses who were picking that up. And the nurses got to eat it and they felt good. And then, you know, they're taking good care of the patient's safety. And that's just a nice, good, all-around vibe to have. Well, cool. Well, I'll, I'll finish with this one. Uh, if you're not on the front lines, if you're not an ER nurse, if you're not in the medical community going to work every day, kind of putting your putting your life at risk, uh, dealing with the viral load of constantly incoming patients with this virus, and you're sitting at home, whether you're working or not, um, what can what can regular folks do to, to help you guys out? Is there anything that we can do? I mean, obviously, sew in the mask, maybe providing some food. Um, what else would you encourage folks in Shreveport to do? I know it's a broken record, but just stay home. <laughs> just really like enjoy your home and your family and stay home and, and just really, you know, pour out a lot of love for, for your, your home team there on your property and you know, just stay home. Certainly if you need to come, come on, come to the ER, that's fine. But the biggest thing you can do is please try to manage, you know, if you, if you, you know, if there's something you can manage at home, please manage it at home. If you call your doctor and they say, ah, eh, just go to the ER, maybe give that doctor a little pushback and say, hey, uh, you know, it's kind of funky in there. Maybe is there anything you and I could do over the phone or with a video conference? Maybe like a description called in to, to this, you know, if there's anything that you can do to not come to the hospitals, it would just help the overall load right now. And that would be so appreciative. I mean, outside of that and, and stuff that's already happening, I, I can't say that I want more out of my community. I just want everybody to be healthy and safe. Well, man, that's awesome. Thank you again for reaching out um, and, uh, and offering to be on the show. And we, uh, we're we just trying to disseminate the, the, the most information we can. Uh, Representative Presley and, and Grant Knuckles were both very informative about you know, the business community and, and what the recovery is going to look like from the statewide level um, and, and locally. But, uh, but you've offered a whole lot of insight into the medical situation that's going on. And we really, really appreciate you. And, and thank you for the the work that you're putting in and the, and the risk that you're taking every day. I appreciate it, man. I look forward to, uh, to the summer being a lot more fun than the spring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I, I hope uh, maybe we'll appreciate everything just a little bit more. Hell yeah. All right, man. Anything else from you, Charlie? Charlie, man, I really appreciate you. Thanks for taking the time on your day off and enjoy the weekend and recharge your batteries and and um, get back at get back at saving everything on Monday. Yeah, man. Appreciate the show. Thank you, guys. All right, man. Take care. Bye, bye.